We had a normal study time, like studying the Bible like we normally have over it was just a fellowship or a get-together. But as the day went on, towards the night, most of the people had left, and it was just uh, my wife and I and another couple in our community group, the Taylors. And somehow one of us remembered that it was one of those nights where there was a meteor shower going on outside. And if you went out and looked up, you would occasionally see stars uh, or meteors streaking across the sky. And so being the good parents that we are, we laid my kids down with my wife's phone on in their room, and we ventured outside across the street to where there is a, um, and I had my phone on, so we were listening the whole time. Trust me, I love my children. Um, there's a, a golf course, an open golf course across the street, so we went out there, the four of us, and just laid out a blanket, and we were laying on our backs just looking up at the stars, looking at the streaking meteors across the sky. And at first, you know, we enjoyed each other's company. We were laughing, just joking, talking about the day for a while, and that eventually gave way to more silence and just reverence. And eventually we listened to, we put on, on, on someone else's sermon, not my, uh, on someone else's phone, not my phone that was carefully listening to my children, but on someone else's phone, a sermon by a man named Louis Giglio uh, called Indescribable where he's just describing the incredible God that rules over and created our universe. Um, with all types of those, you know, those astronomical numbers that you can't really conceive of, of stars that are like 226 million times the size of our planet and just our, the size of our galaxy being one of like 100,000 or billion galaxies, something like that, just numbers that you cannot really conceive but are the world in which we live. And my mind went to Psalm 19, and just understanding it in a deeper way, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out uh, knowledge, or day to day they speak, and night, night to night reveals knowledge. And just being a sense of awe, a sense of fear even, of this great God and his glory settling over me in that moment. And the reason I begin with that just illustration is because as I was just reading through John 17 this week, it struck me how Jesus in this scene experienced something very similar to what I experienced that night, but also something incredibly different than what I experienced that night. By that, I mean if you start to look at just this high priestly prayer between the Son and the Father, opening up in, in chapter 17, verse 1, when it says, when Jesus has spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now that phrase, lifting up your eyes, is something that uh, appears throughout the Bible. And whatever comes after that phrase, whatever the person lifts up their eyes to behold, is generally intended by the author to be what the reader focuses on and, and realizes that this is what we are to um, understand as, as what the person is focusing on. So the fact that Jesus is lifting his eyes and looking to heaven and then you think about the fact that not only is he lifting his eyes and, and looking at heaven, but it's in the middle of the night. We know this, this is during the Last Supper. John in chapter 13 already says that it's, uh, Judas has just left. Judas is out. He's already in the acts of betraying Jesus. And he specifically says that it's nighttime. That in this scene, when Jesus utters this prayer, he's looking up to the heavens. He's observing this night sky that we observed that same night. And yet it's extremely different for Jesus in another way. And that when it says the sky is proclaiming 
his handiwork, Jesus intimately knows that I was part of orchestrating this entire majestic scene in front of me, my handiwork. That when the psalmist says, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge, Jesus is thinking, it's revealing knowledge about me. And just as the psalmist started to think about the glory that the heavens proclaimed, Jesus' mind ventures into the glory that he had with his Father throughout all of eternity. That's, what, that's where his mind is. That's the moment that Jesus is experiencing right now in this pristine, this solemn, quiet moment before all the turbulent actions, events of his cross, uh, death, burial, and resurrection are about to unfold. And he's looking into eternity past, into the bliss that he enjoyed with his father, the glory that he enjoyed with his father. And he's calling for his father to, to perfect his work here on earth, that he might rejoin his father and continue in eternity future, basking in his glory and resuming his position of glory. And what strikes me overall in this passage is that when Jesus is thinking about his glory, you get to a place like verse 11 where he says, and I am no longer in the world and they are in the world and I am coming to you, Holy Father. The fact that he addresses the Father as holy in this moment is unique because God, Jesus throughout this gospel is talking about God the Father, referring to him as the Father some like 114 times in this gospel prior to this point. But he never refers to God as holy except in this moment. It's as if as Jesus is wrapping his brain around eternity past and the glory that he enjoyed being right in the presence of his Father, the preeminent virtue that sticks out in his mind in this moment uniquely is that his Father is holy. And you can tell as you work through this passage that that is what dominates Jesus' thought throughout this passage because the word for holy appears frequently in this passage. He refers to God for the first time in this gospel as holy in verse 11. And then when we get down to places like 17, when he says, sanctify them in your truth, it's the same word in Greek, make them holy in your truth. And again in verse 19, for their sake I consecrate or sanctify myself, I make myself holy, set myself apart, that they also may be sanctified or made holy. The, the idea of holiness is what Jesus is focusing on in this text. And therefore, it ought to be what we focus on as well. If I were to summarize Jesus' prayer for his believers, the point that he would have us take away from his prayer, it would be this, and this would be the, the main point of today. Be holy like God to be one with God. Be holy like God, the Father, to be one with God. We'll break that down into four points as we move through the passage. Number one, now, I like to use alliteration. Some of these don't fit so well, but I'll explain what they mean, but at least you'll remember them. So just write it down and don't ask me about it. Number one, believers should be or are hooked on holiness. Number two, believers are hated for holiness. Three, believers are helped to holiness for believers are hastened by holiness. Hooked on holiness, hated for holiness, helped to holiness, hastened by holiness. 
So just starting with this first point, we already said, when I say that believers are to be hooked on holiness, I mean that if we are to imitate our Lord, if we are to be like Jesus, we ought to be so captivated by a God, a Father who is holy, that that is the preeminent virtue that stands in our minds when we think of our Father in heaven. What does holiness mean? We've said many times in this church that it's probably one of the most important attributes to understand if you were to rightly understand God, because it's how you describe, describe absolutely every other aspect of who God is. At its most basic definition, holiness, to be holy means to be set apart, to be treated unique, to be in a separate, distinct category. When the Bible refers to God as holy, they're saying that in absolutely every way, in absolutely every category, absolutely every characteristic of God, you might describe that characteristic as holy. When we say that God is love, his love is a holy love, meaning that it is distinct, it is set apart, it is infinitely transcendent than every other example of love that you have ever observed in your life or that you might ever come to observe. There is no creature, no being that loves in the way that God loves. His love is a holy love. It is set apart. It is distinct in a class by itself. In the same way, his righteousness, his justice, his hatred for sin, the sin in your life and my life that we commit every day, his hatred over sin is a holy hatred. He has a holy, just hatred over sin, meaning no matter what sin that you've observed in the world, no matter to what degree it has provoked your anger, a righteous anger. That is nothing in comparison to the way that God hates sin. His anger for sin, his hatred for sin is holy in that sense. This is what dominates Jesus' thought. And it's also what draws Jesus to the Father. Again, in verse 11, when he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Keep them in your name so that they might be one, he says. What does he mean by keep them in your name? It's sort of an odd way of referring to um, just being completely captivated by the person and the work of who God the Father is. When Jesus refers to the name of God, whenever the Bible refers to the name of God, it's referring to the totality of who he is as a person and a full understanding of his actions, his works in the world. So when Jesus says, keep them in your name, he's saying, keep them Keep their world, the way that they perceive the world, let the totality of who you are, of how you work, wrap around their brains and just color and drape across every thought that they have. Keep your holiness, your beauty, your love, your righteousness, your hatred for sin in front of them at all times. Keep them in that space where they are fascinated and riveted on who you are so that they might be one with you. He's saying that to draw near to God, to be one with God, you must be like him. God does not tolerate sin. He cannot tolerate sin. He he loves all that is infinitely beauty and 
beautiful and righteous and lovely. If we are to experience his nearness, we must increasingly grow to love all that is infinitely beauty and lovely and righteous. In order to experience oneness with him, we must be holy. And so we are to be like Jesus was, hooked on his holiness. When you think of God, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? If you're suffering, if you're going through something right now, is a sense of bitterness against God the first thing that comes into your mind? That God is somehow conniving or that God is somehow disingenuous in all of the promises that you see laid forth in Scripture that you don't feel like have been extended to you or you're not experiencing the blessing that it seems like other Christians may be experiencing or people in the Bible seem to be experiencing. The first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God, what is that? He is huge. That's right. And I think that's exactly where Jesus wants us to be. That in every, absolutely every aspect of who he is, God is holy, and you are to be like him and fascinated by his holiness. But number two, as we grow in holiness, we know, according to Jesus' words, that believers will be hated for holiness. Let's look at verses 14 through 16 now. Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, first of all, that's an amazing thing that Jesus says when he says that they are not of the world, just as in the same way that I am not of the world. Because on a surface level, that seems to be false. This whole gospel is about an infinitely perfect and righteous God breaking into a sinful dark humanity in order to redeem them, coming from heaven into our world. It's very clear that he is not of this world, but you and I are of this world. We are born in sin. We are born with a selfish inclination, a desire to pursue the very things that God hates, to allow other pleasures to rival and trump the pleasure that we experience in God in our lives. And yet, because Jesus has done such a complete work, and because the destiny of his children is so secure for all of eternity, because we have been united with Jesus and we are continuing to realize our oneness with him, Jesus can say, just as I am not of this world, you no longer belong to this world either. You do not belong here. This is not your home. You are no longer enslaved to the things that people of this world are enslaved by. But that causes a friction with the rest of the world, doesn't it? Jesus says that the world hates those that are walking with the Lord. Now, I know that there are times when you see words like, see, you see Jesus make statements like this and you compare it to our own life and you think that, Hatred might be a little bit of a strong word. Like, I don't feel like people around me who aren't believers hate me. Like, that seems too extreme. And yet, let's understand that Jesus has a greater perspective as he's considering all of eternity and looking down on humanity, a greater perspective on the true nature of the human heart than you and I do. 
we may live in, in a rather cordial society in, in our affluence and in this Western nation where you don't struggle as much as the rest of the world does, but the moment you begin to insist on a righteous standard that we all fall short of, the moment you begin to be explicit and exclusive about who the perfect embodiment of truth is, that's when the bullets begin to fly. Everyone is fine when we dull down the blade of God's truth. But if Jesus truly is who he says that he is, the, man, the minute that you begin to hold up that banner, opposition will come. It is opposition that is headed by the evil one. And I just think that it's amazing that uh, right after saying that Jesus' believers are hated in this world, he specifically says, but God, don't take them out of this world. Like you can imagine if one of the disciples really understood what he was saying and understood like the fact that most of them, in fact, all of the disciples eventually were martyred for their faith in the Lord, that I would vote if I could, if I had a vote in the middle of this prayer, a vote for an amendment in that prayer. Like just take like a handful of us out now. Take a handful of us out of the world now, but Jesus never promised, even from the very beginning, that his disciples would escape pain, escape suffering. But he does promise that as we grow in oneness with him, that we experience a special union with him that preserves us in the midst of our suffering and pain and even death. It's because of all those things that we are hated by the world for this pursuit of oneness with our God suit of being holy as he is holy. And yet number three, he moves on. Believers are helped in this endeavor of holiness. Believers are helped to holiness. Verse 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, I mentioned before that every time you see the word sanctified or consecrate, it's the same word for holy. Jesus is saying in verse 17, make them holy in your truth. Who's he talking to again? He's talking to the Father. He is commanding the Father to carry out this act in the believer's life. He is not commanding you to sanctify yourself in the truth. This is a personal, private, so to speak, conversation between the Son and the Father that they will arrange this sanctification to happen. And yet he does ordain a means by which he makes us holy, that he draws us to himself, and that is his word. The total revelation of all that God has said, of all that Jesus said when he was on this earth, of all that the Holy Spirit inspired the prophets of old to say about this God this incredible, holy God of the universe is what Jesus says we ought to be diving into regularly, that we ought to be transformed by. And just by being in his word, his father will accomplish this work, sanctifying us, making us more holy, making us more like him. And I think it's just always important to Remember that when he says this, don't forget places like last week looking at verse 13 
when he discusses that he wants us to be like God for our joy. This is not just because he wants us that way with no real end in sight, no real good that we can savor and, and experience ourselves. When he says, I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that my joy be fulfilled in themselves. It's the same thing that he said in, the, in chapter 15 in the whole vine and the branches passage. And he says in verse 10, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. One of the things that people say about the universe, uh, that Christian theologians will say about the universe, when we, when we seek to understand these phrases like um, that the, the sky above is proclaiming something about God, that when we see massive explosions and uh, quasars and pulsars and, and all these type of incredibly, incredible demonstrations of power in the universe, that those are intended by God to experience, to, to communicate something of his power, even the explosive power of his love and affection, even within the Godhead. The explosiveness, the, the incredible um, capacity of Jesus' heart to be enraptured with love for the Father, to be consumed with joy in the presence of the Father. This is what he is saying that he is inviting us into. This is what satisfied an infinite being for, throughout all of eternity and will continue to satisfy him in glory in the future. Joy, infinite, boundless, immeasurable. Joy in the presence of the Father. Why is he telling us to be holy and to be one with the Lord? Because that is where we experience joy. And he is the one that will bring this process about as we seek to dive into his word regularly. And so again, just another pulse on your own life. When it comes to spending time with the Lord, where are you? Do you enjoy getting away and spending time with the Lord to hear him speak to you through his word? Even in those times when it seems like it's really dry and it's more just mundane, God is doing something and planting seeds and conforming your mind to think the way that he thinks, planting dormant seeds that will yield fruit the more that we tarry with him. Do you tarry in his word, in his truth? Are you being conformed and sanctified, made holy by him? Lastly, it's just important Again, in verse 19, when he says, for their sake, I consecrate myself. In this sense, when he's saying, I set myself apart, I make myself holy, he is alluding back to an entire Old Testament system where the sacrificed animal or unblemished lamb was said to be consecrated or set apart for the slaughter. For the remission of sins for the people, the lamb was set apart from the other uh, lambs with, with blemish and other animals, and this lamb or this sacrificial animal was set apart to be slaughtered for the remission of sins. What Jesus is alluding to is that, Father, in order for you to accomplish this work of sanctification, of making them holy, I am setting myself apart. I am getting, I am preparing myself to be slaughtered for their sake. My life to be poured out for their sake. 
it just brings to mind places like in, in Peter, where Peter just reminds us that we weren't redeemed by things like gold and silver and things that perish. We were redeemed by the precious blood of the Son of God. Jesus poured out his life. He set himself apart. He made himself holy in that sense that we might be made holy and drawn into oneness with him. Finally, just my last point, and this is probably the worst H that I have. Hasten to buy holiness. What I'm trying to get at is just the fact that as we are being made holy, the reason that we are being made holy is that God might send us out to be witnesses of his holiness, that the world might see him and might be drawn to him. I get that starting in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples that are presently around him as he's speaking, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's looking down the corridors of time. He's looking to the, the chain of uh, cause and effect that will happen as, as his believers around him continue to bear witness to his name, bear witness to his holiness, to his majesty, and word of this God and this Savior continues to travel down the halls of time to where it eventually reaches you in this room. That these people are being sanctified, being made holy in order to spread the news of this holy God that has redeemed them. He goes on in verse 21, that they may all be one again, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why is it that they're being sent? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. He repeats it again in verse 23, even. I am them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. What just struck me, a thought, is that one of the most beloved, what's the first Bible verse that you probably memorize as a kid? John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. About God the Father sending his son into the world to witness to the world that people would see him and be drawn to everlasting life. This passage is about essentially Jesus, John 3, 16-ing his followers, consecrating them, sending them into the world that the world might know him and be drawn into everlasting life. Do you look at yourself, believer, Christian, as one that God has sent into the world? It, it, would that, if you were to describe the overall purpose of your life, and therefore how you arrange all the other aspects of your life in order to fit that broad narrative of your life, would you describe that narrative or describe your life as, I am one who is sent by my Savior into the world to bear witness of him? Does it affect the way that you work? That you're around unbelievers? Does it affect the way that you love and try to mimic and imitate the way that your Savior loved? 
Does it affect the way that you interact with your spouse, the, the way that you parent your children? Does it affect every aspect of your life, this fact that my life is no longer my own, Paul says in Galatians 2. I have been redeemed with a price. It's no longer I that lives, but it is Christ who lives in me. The entire purpose of my life is to bear witness of this majestic and infinitely glorious God that I will spend all of eternity chasing down his glory, growing in deeper and deeper levels, waves of joy as my Savior does. Just if someone were to look at your life, what would they say? This is what Jesus is praying for on the precipice of being thrown into the most horrific death that anyone on this earth has experienced because it's not just physical, but he is being willing, he is willingly tearing himself, the fellowship that he has enjoyed throughout all of eternity, the fellowship that left him so completely satisfied that he did not need to create a single being or a single thing in this universe in order to fulfill himself. Perfectly satisfied, perfect joy, and yet out of the overflow of joy, he created sinful, rebellious people. And yet as he's about to enter into this whirlwind of his own demise, on this last quiet moment before the storm, communing peacefully with the Father before the Father turns his back on his Son. He is praying for you that you would be holy, that you would be drawn to the Father, that you would become like the Father in order to be drawn nearer and nearer to him to experience your Savior's joy. And so I would just say that as we go throughout the week, let that thought, that single thought, my Savior desires for me, is commanding me, poured out his blood so that I would be made holy and drawn near to him. And may God give us the grace to grow in that this week. Let's pray. Father, repeatedly, from the very beginning of scriptures, you say to your people, be holy, for I am holy. And we learn more from our Savior's words in this text, words that were uttered from his lips to the throne room of heaven, that the reason we are to be holy like you are holy is so that we might be one with you and experience increasingly forever more of the perfect fellowship and righteousness and joy, ecstasy that you enjoyed throughout all of eternity past that sustained you in the darkest hours of your crucifixion. When we learn from places like Hebrews 12 that it was this joy that was set before you that enabled you to endure the cross, despising the shame, and to eventually be reseated in your place of glory at the right hand of God. Lord, we pray that you would draw us into yourself, that we would be so enamored with your beauty, 
that the things of this world would go strangely dim. That all we will see is the light of your holiness and that we would be drawn to it like moths to a flame. Be with us, Lord. We thank you that you are the one to carry it out. That you know all of our shortcomings, that you know every one of our days before any of them were, had yet come to be. You know how we will fail today, tomorrow, in the future, in this endeavor. And yet we also know that as you say in the end of this passage, that not only did you make your name known to us, but you will continue to make it known to us. You will continue to reveal your glory, your holiness to us, that we might be conformed by it. Lord, we just thank you and pray that you will work in our lives throughout this week as we go. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.